We are talking about Moses. This is part three uh, today. We're in, I can't remember if Jason mentioned this or not, but we're, this summer we're just doing this kind of fun sampling of the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham to King David, so Abe to Dave. And we are at Moses, and we gave Moses three uh, because his impact um, on Scripture is profound and tremendous. Um, but if you remember, uh, start with Abe, well, start with Adam and Eve. That's all in Genesis covers Adam and Eve to Joseph, basically. Um, and you get from Joseph to, which is a family in Egypt, to a whole people group. That's the start of Exodus. And that's where Lucas had us two weeks ago um, with the people group of Israel, which was Jacob's other name, the Israelites, um, in Egypt. And I'm going to slow down real quick. Here's where we're going this morning. I have an enormous amount of material to cover, okay? <laughs> Lucas got the first 40 years, and that was great. And the first 40 years is the developmental period for Moses, maybe being um, um, crafted and, and, and trained to become the next Pharaoh, maybe. Jason got the humbling period of Moses, 40 years under and with Jethro, quiet, just as a shepherd. Um, I'm going to take Moses from 80 to 120 years, which is four books of the Bible, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So I, got, so I have a lot in my head, so I'm going to slow us down a little bit. So that's where we're going. Um, I want to tell you how to think about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and how they fit and where they go. Then we're going to look at an incomplete 13-point timeline. Um, these sheets of paper felt big in my office, and now they seem really, they almost feel like post-it notes to me now. And it's very incomplete, but we're going to look at that, and then we're going to jump into one spot in Exodus that I'm going to um, just try and pull some stuff out of for you. Um, this morning, um, our church is giving us a gift. Um, every pew, the little, the little holders in the pews has two of these. These are like little journals. Uh, if you already have a journal, congratulations. Uh, if you don't like this and you want a better one, you know where Barnes & Noble is. Um, but if, if you don't have one and you like this, this is for you. They're free. There's two in every one. It's not enough for everybody, but everybody's not going to take one because everybody doesn't always take everything, even if it's a ring pop. So um, <laughs> here's why this is in here. Moses spent time with God in a way that was totally radical. God says of his relationship with Moses, I speak to him face to face. Um, Moses then wrote stuff down. He wrote stuff down. That's the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalm 90. Um, Moses wrote stuff down. His time with Jesus, his time with God, and then what he wrote down from that time has had a profound impact on us. David spent time with Jesus, and then he wrote stuff down. His murmurings and mumblings and rhyming and singing in the wilderness with some sheep, became Israel's hymn book. Paul, in prison, traveling, wrote some stuff down. His letter correspondence became our canon gospel epistles. John Mark hangs out with Peter and hears the story of Jesus through Peter and writes down the gospel of Mark. Luke has a friend named Theophilus, does his research, spends time with God, writes down Luke and Acts. When the people of God spend time with God and then write it down. Their prayers, their tears, their longings, their sorrows, their anger, their hurts, or just the narrative, their story. 
It has a profound impact, not only on those around them, but specifically the generations to come. And we're going to see that today. So the invitation and the gift for you is if you don't already have a rhythm or you used to have a rhythm but you've kind of fallen away from it or you've never had a rhythm and you don't know what to write, take one of these and start this morning. There are, there are pens in those little bucket things, but you kind of have to like put your hand down and like feel ski for it along the bottom. Um, I have a few of some Young Life pens up here. If you need one, you can raise your hand. I'll throw you a pen. But um, if I don't see you raising your hand, I'm sorry because I'm going to keep moving because I have so much. So anyway. Oh, and then one thing I wanted to, yeah, I got you. You need one? Are you serious? Are you serious? Okay. Ready? Bingo. Okay. Um, it's, and it, it's not because you are such a prolific writer or because your sainthood is so amazing that you got to record it or your sinnerhood is so devastating that the world must know how much you've been redeemed from. It's none of that. The reality is um, when I was uh, 21, so my dad died when I was six years old. He was a fighter pilot. He died in Desert Storm. He died when I was six years old. As a 21-year-old, I was in my mom's room. I was going through her closet looking for something I can't remember what I was looking for, and I found one of my dad's prayer journals. Never seen it before, never knew it existed, and it chronicled um, his dating and engagement with my mom. I opened it. I probably had one hour that I was reading it. Um, it was raw, raw confession, uh, frustrations, and then he would pen his own psalms. He would write his own psalms of praise and thanksgiving. The one hour that I spent with my dad's prayer journal changed my life. Changed my life. Um, I had a window into my dad's soul and his walk with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who I now understood was the God of Greg, Peter, Ronald Hook, Joshua Gravitt. And it ran alongside and emboldened my faith. I have a stack of these at my house that are terrible. They're all terrible. None of them are for you. There's nothing good in there for you. But I'm sure if the Holy Spirit breezes over it for someone, it could be good. But it's not for them. It's for me. Because we are fickle and forgetful and God is faithful. But I read my dad's prayer journal and it changed my life. I read the Psalms. They have changed my life. Jesus is toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. Toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan after 40 days of fasting and he's being tempted. Do you know what he calls upon? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Three times he quotes, it is written, instead of new words. When the saints and the sinners of God spend time with him and write it down, it is profoundly impactful, not only for you, but specifically for the generations that are coming behind us that need to know that God was not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he was the God of you, your family, your lineage, your story, running parallel and alongside and emboldening the faith of those to come. It's a gift to you. It's an invitation. And I have no slides. I never have slides. I have no slides. I have one slide that we're not going to show you right now. One slide. So you, if you want to take away, you can't take a picture of anything, you've got to write it down. Because the dullest pencil is sharper than the sharpest mind. And I didn't make that up. Because if you write it down, you won't forget it. Okay. So here's where we're going. Yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to catch. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where and how does Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy fit, and how do you use them? Okay? What I'd like to do is I'd like to give you the original titles of those books before the Hebrew was turned into like Latin and Greek and then English because the titles have been changed and the original titles are kind of better. I'm going to tell you the, the amount of space that they cover and kind of what's in them and what's happening. Then we're going to turn and we're going to jump through this fun timeline that's, that was done by an expert designer, and um, then we're going to sink into one spot. Okay, 
Um, here's what you need to know about those books. Moses wrote all of them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They cover the journey and the movement of Israel from Egypt to the edge of the promised land when Joshua is going to usher them through the Jordan River and in. The original name of the book of Exodus in Hebrew is names. Names. Not, that's not how you say it in Hebrew. I'm just giving you like what it means in Hebrew. Names. It's because it starts with some names. Almost all the Old Testament books start with the first few words that are there. Genesis, in the beginning, the beginning. Exodus starts with some names, so it's called names. Exodus chronicles how they left Egypt and arrived at Sinai to receive a way of life. The law, how they're going to camp, what festivals and holidays they're going to have, etc. They had known 430 years of slavery. They needed to know how to live now. Exodus chronicles that. It only chronicles a period of time that's a few months, three to five months of time from Egypt to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Think Ten Commandments. Um, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is they build, they build like this tent called the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is having some lampstands and some basins and some tables for bread and all kinds of stuff because God's going, I'm going to give you a rough draft model of a real thing happening in heaven. I'm going to live in your midst. I'm going to live in your midst. Three of y'all are going to camp on the north. Three of y'all, the tribes, are going to camp on the south. Three on the east, three on the west with the priests around me and me at the very center of you. You will only move when I move. Cloud or think shade by day. Fire, think nightlight at night. Every day, every night. They'd wake up in the morning, the clouds moved, they'd pack up everything. We're talking about a 12 mile circumference of 2.3, 2.5, 3.1 million people moving every time this thing moves from over the center of them. Radical, radical. That's Exodus. We're moving on. Leviticus, okay? Leviticus, the terrible name. It's a terrible name. The actual Hebrew title of Leviticus is, and he called. And he called. So much better. I'll read that. Like, you want, like the book of Leviticus, you're like, Leviticus, that sounds, well, it just sounds like, I don't even know what it sounds like. If I don't know what a Levite is, I'm like, what even could that be about? But, and he called. What was he calling to them about? how they were going to worship him. They only knew worship to pagan foreign gods. So Leviticus is the structure. He gives them the structure of how they're going to actually camp and live. Leviticus is the structure of how you will worship me. And if you read it with some help, people who, like, like scholars and theologians who've taken the time to understand other cultures at that time in human history. Leviticus is one of the most compassionate, kind, eco-friendly, farm animal-friendly, woman-friendly, immigrant, foreigner-friendly culture that had ever existed or even been heard of on the planet to date at the time. We read it, and it seems kind of harsh now, and we don't understand what we're reading because we can't know all the realities of, of how difficult life was back then. But the... the, the the way that God calls them to live is full of mercy. But it takes a little work to see that because we're so far removed from that time period. So Leviticus, which is, and he called, is how they were going to worship God. It or, he ordains every day of the week you're going to remember me with the day of Sabbath where you remember and you rest. Every year you're going to have seven holidays where you remember me, seven feasts, seven parties, seven 
celebrations where you remember me. Every decade, within that period, every seven years, you will have, on the seventh year, you will have a whole year of Sabbath. So in every decade, there's a rhythm for a super fun celebration. And every century, there are two markers for you to have Jubilee. You'll have a whole year of Jubilee where properties are restored to the original landowning family so that you could, you could nix uh, perpetual poverty, systematic poverty, and all slaves are released twice a decade. These are the rhythms that he put into place for them to worship and live in this new freedom life that he's giving them. That's the book of Leviticus. It's awesome. We're moving. Numbers. The actual title of Numbers is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. Um, and when you say them all together, it like almost kind of makes a sentence. I'm not going to get into that right now because um, I can't. Because I can't. I have so, I can't. So don't, do not let me go on a tangent. If you feel like I'm starting to go on a tangent, you can just like do like a double shooter at me, like a double shooter. Go on a tangent. Okay, here we go. Um, in the wilderness, the book of Numbers has the best stories in it, but because it's called Numbers, we don't read it. Because who reads a book called math or called, or called homework or called um, foreign language to you? Or who reads a book called Numbers? Like, no one reads that book. But if the book is called In the Wilderness, lots of people are reading that book. And that is what this book is called. This book chronicles their journey from Mount Sinai. So where Exodus leaves off, it chronicles their walk or their wandering in the wilderness. From Mount Sinai to this place called Kadesh, where they blow it. We'll talk about that. And then instead of taking an 11-day journey up into the promised land, they take a 40-year loop wandering in the desert while everybody of voting age dies. Then they come right back to Kadesh and they go in. That's Joshua taking them in. Um, if you want to read a, a condensed history, you could look at Psalm 78, Psalm 105, or Psalm 106. These are, those are the, these awesome little songs for Israel to remember their history that are much shorter than the four-book reality of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, that's Numbers. Deuteronomy is a speech that a 120-year-old Moses gives in the, in the plains of Moab across from Jericho. And the actual title is A Copy of This Law. A Copy of This Law. If Leviticus is about how they're going to worship and Numbers is about how they walked it out, Deuteronomy is remember. Remember where we came from. Because if my son was a part of it, who's five years old right now, he would be 45 years old when they're now about to go into the promised land, even though they were only 11 days away from it when he was five years old. But he didn't have anything to do with that. I voted wrong. I die in the wilderness somewhere. Now he's 45, which is so weird to me. And he's like, all right. And Moses is like, mm. And he gives them the speech of Deuteronomy. It's awesome. Um, it's his farewell speech. He's recapping, reminding, warning, and encouraging them. Um, he sings three songs. Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 90. They're awesome. And in Revelation, the choruses of heaven sing a song that is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Revelation 15. Moses spent time with God and he wrote it down. Huge impact. 
That's how you think about those books. Deuteronomy is, it's, when you think speech, don't think like rah, 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 rah. Think like this dude is he, is, he knows he's about to die. In every movie, when the protagonist is about to die, the last things they say are important. Think about Deuteronomy like that. He's about to condense everything with his 120-year-old wisdom, looking back on it and going, remember, 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 don't do this. Do, do this. Great job here. Botched it here. Love this. Don't forget that. God is like this. La, 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 la. Sings a song, and then it's like, <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. And then he hands it off to Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, all the same name. And they go in, and they take the land. That's, that's like how the books fit. Does that make sense? I mean, kind of, as much as it can when somebody's like talking too fast at you. So that's how those fit and work. Now, let's go to this incredibly um, <laughs> unexhaustive timeline. Um, ten plagues in Egypt. Ten plagues in Egypt. If God wanted to deliver his people quickly, he could have done that. It's not like God only has like a deck of cards and he's like, when am I going to play frogs? Because like, like, or, or like, oh, I wish I, had more, I wish I had a different way of like convincing Pharaoh, like, come on. God could just be like this. Hey, guys, let my people go. If he says no, when you wake up in the morning, everybody will be dead. You can take all this stuff. That's so not hard for God. For the Israelites to wake up one morning and everybody in Egypt is dead, they just walk through their homes, take whatever they want, leave. But God is doing something more than that because God does not delight when the wicked perish. He would that none would perish, but that all would come and have eternal life. So you're watching God not only draw his children out, but woo the oppressor in the midst of it to overthrow their worldview of foreign demonic deities and a pharaoh who's a narcissist who believes he's, the, he's a god. That's why you're watching it play out that way. Ten plagues. Jason told me to move a little faster through this. So I'm going to try to. <laughs> First plague. River from, water from the Nile River turns into blood. And the magicians are like, ha-ha, we can do that too. What, I don't even know what that means or what kind of dark voodoo magic that is, but that's what it says. Plague number two. Frogs from the Nile. Magicians, boom, bang, we can do that too. I don't even know how you replicate that, but like we, we can do that too. Heaps of frogs piled all over Egypt, disgusting. Plague number three, gnats. Moses, Moses strikes the ground, the dust, and it becomes gnats. The magicians at this point back off a little bit, and they're like, this is the finger of God. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, gnats are terrible, and, and you have piles of frogs everywhere decaying, and so it's like so gross and they're having to dig trenches along the Nile to get fresh water because the whole Nile has turned to blood and the fish are dead. So it's a disaster zone there. But they're like, gnats, bro? Gnats, bro? No. <laughs> and that's number three. Flies is number four. And that's different than gnats. You got you to gotta figure that out. But at this point, from four on, from four on, God puts a distinction between where his people live and where Egypt is. Goshen and Egypt. No flies in Goshen. Uh, plague number five, livestock die across Egypt. Not in Goshen. Plague number six, boils. Not a lot about that, and that's just gross. Boils are gross. Like, if you have boils, in my mind, that's a mega zit. That's a mega zit, but it's not like a zit. And I didn't do any research on that one, so... <laughs> 
But, but the magicians are so messed up with their boils that they're like, Pharaoh's like, come and talk to me. And they're like, we can't. They won't show up to him. They're like, no, bro. We told you back at Nats, so we can't come. Boils. Number seven is a hailstorm, unlike any hailstorm that's ever happened. People that were out in the fields died. Everything, anything that was left outside died, not in Goshen. So God is beginning to show a distinction between. So, uh, number eight, locusts. Crazy locusts. And at this point, Pharaoh goes, forgive me. Forgive me. His heart is in process, and God is, God is also acting around and within his heart, but he says, forgive me. Changes his mind. Uh, plague number nine is a felt darkness for three days. A darkness that was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and you could feel it for three days. What is that? And so... This time when Moses appears, this time when Moses appears, Pharaoh goes, don't ever appear in front of me again or you'll die. Ooh, Moses gets so mad. Moses gets so mad. And he's like, you got it, boss. I will never, ever appear in front of you again. But mark my words, tomorrow night, your son will die. Every firstborn animal, from the cricket to the goat to the slave to the king, will die. And you will beg us to leave. And he storms out. It's such a hot, it's such a hot moment. Oh my gosh. If you just wanted to study the plagues, just pull them up out of context and just study them. Um, Exodus 7 through 12, it'll, it'll rock your socks off. You don't even have to keep reading and feel bad about that. You just study the plagues. That's the Passover. God goes, this moment when my spirit, when an angel of the Lord literally, literally passes over Egypt, this is to be the first month of the first year for you. This is your beginning. Blood and death. You know where that comes from. Our, our communion, when we take communion, we are literally celebrating and remembering a Passover meal. We've just pared it way down. We've pared it way down because when Jesus was eating that meal with his disciples, the Last Supper was a Passover holiday festival feast. They would drink four cups of wine and eat... Um, lamb with bitter herbs and they would eat bread without yeast in it because God goes, don't put yeast in your bread. You're not going to have time for it to rise. You are leaving tonight. But we've pared it way down. We take like a little cup and a little piece of bread. We're like, mm, I remember. And that's okay. Like we remember the blood of Jesus shed. He was our Passover lamb that's been sacrificed once and for all. His blood covers me once and for all, past, present, future. But we sometimes miss it. Like we're going all the way back to like this moment is that feast that Jesus was also celebrating that we now celebrate when we take communion. And that's what I really wanted to preach on today, but I'm not going to. Tangents, I'm not going there. You can't trick me. Okay. Passover, it's the beginning for them. So they leave, and they take a bunch of the, of the Egyptian stuff with them. They rob Egypt on the way out. Hey, can I borrow that diamond necklace? Sure, get out of here. Hey, can I have your three gold bracelets? Yeah, sure, get out. They rob Egypt when they leave. This, now, this is kind of geographically done. I know you could see that, but this is, so we're talking about Egypt right here, down to the, oh, uh, can we pull up my one slide, please? All right, here we go. This is the world. This is a map. We're all familiar with these things. Okay. There's Egypt, top left, green, Sinai Peninsula, like a gray, Red Sea, um, right there on the left, and then like the other fork of it on the right, and then Israel, or promised land, top right, you can see the bottom of the Dead Sea and Canaan, it goes up further from there. 
So my map here beautifully models this map there, okay? That's what you need to know. So, 10 plagues in Egypt coming down, crossing the Red Sea. Red Sea is not a good translation. It's the Sea of Reeds. Not really any, there's no arguing about that. It's just the Sea of Reeds. It just got kind of mistranslated as the Red Sea. It doesn't mean it wasn't that spot. It just means we've all, we always kind of think like ocean probably, and it was probably more terribly marshy, and they did walk through on dry ground with two walls of water on either side. But Pharaoh's army totally gets engulfed there. Which, by the way, if you think about what Egypt's already been through, and now the men who remain, who are of fighting age, who have been trained, are all dead come morning. Everything about Egyptian society, which was the, the most advanced society on our planet to date, was decimated. Decimated, neutralized, equalized. Any Arnold Schwarzenegger movie word, that, terminated, like you get it. Cross the Red Sea. Um, it closes on them. Then they come on the other side, and they're like, we are hungry. And God feeds them with manna and quail. Manna is the Hebrew word for what is it. It would literally be like if we went outside, and in the grass you saw something, and you were like, what's that? And then we all were like, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? And we all just started calling bread, what's that? So we're like, hey, on my sandwich, just make sure you use what's that? That's what manna means. What is that? Manna is the Hebrew. It's like, what is that? That's literally what they called it. And they're like, oh, it's like a tasty honey wafer and they would eat it. Quail is just a bird. There's not something special for that. Quail is a bird. It wasn't just like sitting there. I think they had to like, and like eat it. Um, but God brought quail in twice for them. Once in Exodus 16, once in Numbers 11, which is a year later. And now we know, what's amazing about this is that there is a massive quail migration that happens across the Sinai Peninsula. God's timing is beautiful. Um, manna and quail. I got to keep moving. I really want to stop on all these, but I got to keep moving. I love you, and you have a notebook, so you're taking notes on this. And this is Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. What you're looking for is anything that makes you curious or wonder. I'm going to give you the spot for it so you can go dig. Because when God's people spend time with God and they write it down, it's profoundly impactful, not only for them, but for the generation to come. Moses strikes a rock because they need water. He strikes a rock. The rock gives water. That's fine. He does it again. We're going to talk about that, and that's not okay. That's a year later, though. Then he goes up a mountain, which you can see from this timeline. He goes up a mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Oh, the Ten Commandments. Holy moly. Okay, so they don't have, like, they have, like, this is going to be for them their constitution. When he goes up, he brings 70 elders with him, and they see God. They see the form of God, and it says God did not lift his hand against them to kill them, because no one can see God and live. Forty days later, they're dancing around in golden calf, and Aaron and the elders who were there have let that happen. That is crazy. How fickle and forgetful we are. That's crazy. Goes up, Ten Commandments, he has to do this twice, because he goes up, and I think by my count, I've studied this a few times, he, he does a total number of 120 days of prayer and fasting. 40 days up on the mountain with God, comes down, sees the golden calf, lays on his face 40 days and 40 nights, gets back up, goes back up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments again, because he broke the first set, 40 more days and 40 nights. Bonkers. Bonkers. This is Exodus 20 and 34, Ten Commandments, comes down, sees the golden calf, grinds it they, they take all their gold from Egypt. They give it to Aaron. He makes them a golden calf. But when, when Moses asks him about it, he's like, bro, 
I just threw this in the fire and this thing came out. <laughs> and you know the thing had hammer marks on it and like looks homemade and Moses is like, nice ma'am. <laughs> They're dancing around it. He grinds it up to dust, puts it in the water and makes them drink it. Which later becomes the test to see if your wife has cheated on you. And I'm not even getting into that. <laughs> because they had cheated on God, just so we're clear. <laughs> Moses goes back up again, and now he is lit up. When he comes down this time, his face is glowing. It's super frightening to everybody because his face is glowing. If you remember what happens to Stephen when he's being stoned, it's a similar occurrence. Um, but everybody's so weirded out by it that Moses puts a veil over his face, which I would argue is creepier. Like, <laughs> like you come down and you're like, What's up, y'all? And they're like, my God, it's so frightening to me. Glowing face, that's Exodus 34, 29. Check it out. It also gets picked up in the New Testament, I think in 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul is talking about the glory of the new covenant that does not fade off of us. Um, comes back down, and now his sister and his brother, his, his posse, Miriam and Aaron, Miriam and Aaron are taking up some beef with him because he took a Cushite wife. I'm not getting into it because she was probably elite because they were the slaves for 430 years in their territories. She's Egyptian and, and they had a long history of being dominant. So they're probably going, look at you getting all high and mighty with your Egyptian Cushite, with your Ethiopian Cushite wife. Who do you think you are? Not getting into it because God comes down and goes to bat for Moses, and I'm not even going to tell you what happens. That's Numbers 12. That's for you. It gets intense for Miriam for a minute. Then it's okay. Then they go, all right, now we're roughly a year. We're roughly in here. We're getting to close to like a year in the wilderness, which was okay. That was all where they were supposed to be. They're all, I mean, you know, whatever. They go, let's go check out the land. They're 11 days away. They're an 11-day journey. Let's go send some people into the land. 12 spies. One from each tribe. Two of those guys are named Joshua and Caleb. They go check out the land. Is it awesome? They come back. Yes, it is awesome. The grapes are like softballs and like it's verdant and awesome. However, the land is inhabited with giants. And we felt like grasshoppers when we were near them. These people come back. Ten of them say that. Joshua and Caleb go, no way. We can do it. The Lord will be on our side. Ten verse two. The ten seed the multitude with fear. And they rebel against God. No, we're not going. You know what they say? Let's choose a new leader and, let him, and have him take us back to Egypt. Because when we're afraid, we oftentimes romanticize, afraid or lonely, we oftentimes romanticize our sin. We forget all of the, all of the wounds we have from the shackles and we forget that we were throwing our babies in the river. This moment is what causes them to have every person of voting age die for the next 40 years of wandering in the wilderness so that their children will be the ones, the next generation will be the ones to take the land. That's the moment when it happens. The ground eats a bunch of people. This happens. It is literally one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. It is intense. Number 16, if I even start talking about it, I can't stop. So it's number 16, the ground eats people. Next. 
Some people are like, how come only Aaron gets to be a priest? I feel like I got some priests. I feel like I got some priest clout. I'd like to be part of this. God's like, you know what? So done. He's not. Take a bunch of staffs from people, all the tribes. I want to show you who I've chosen. They put the staffs in front of the ark, and the next morning, Aaron's staff, which is just an old stick. It's not a new branch. It's, just as, it's as old as Moses' stick, but it also became a snake in Egypt, by the way, um, which is crazy. His staff has grown a new branch on it with almond blossoms and almonds hanging on it. And everybody's like, okay, Aaron's the guy. Because all the other sticks are normal. Guess what's the first tree to come into blossom in the spring in the promised land every year? Almond trees. Boom! That is number 17. That's for you, because we're not stopping. Now, numbers 20. They're thirsty again, and God goes, speak to the rock this time. But Moses is so, un- he's so at the end of himself. He's like, he's mad. He's just mad. And instead of speaking to the rock, because he's there, he's basically the representative of God to them. And in, in essence, in this moment, God's not mad. God knows, like, 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 like a toddler at the zoo, you're like, I get it. We're not going to go. We're not going to where the rhinos are because you're burnt. I get it. And that's my wife. And I'm like, what's going on? What do you think we're here to do? So like Moses is like me. God's like, I'm not mad. I get it. You're burnt out. Speak to the rock. Moses is angry. He strikes the rock twice. The rock still brings out water, but because of that infraction, he does not go into the promised land. Boom. To whom much is given, much is required. Numbers 20. There is a lot that happens between here and here, but it was getting too intense in my office and also on this wall, and so there is a lot that happens from here to here. And that's all for you, and it's in there, but I'm just going to tell you about this moment, okay? End of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, Moses is 120 years old. He finishes his speech. God takes him up to the top of Mount Nebo, hence the rise in the timeline, and he shows him all of the promised land, but he does not go into the promised land, and he dies, and it says God buries him, and no one knows where he buried him. That is what it says, and that is crazy. That is crazy. That God's like... I don't even know what we're talking about, but like, God buried him. And in the book of Jude, by the way, Jude just talks about Satan and Michael arguing over Moses' body in the book of Jude. And that's from some extra writing stuff that Jewish people wrote about, that Jude knew about, that's not in the Bible. Moses dies. There you go. Joshua takes him in. It's an amazing story. Here's where we're going. We're going to jump into a spot that's right here. Right here. After Moses strikes a rock and water comes out, before he goes up against the Ten Commandments, we're going to look at a little spot that is kind of obscure, but I think it's what the Lord has for us this morning, especially in light of uh, this being on my heart weeks ago. Um, The people have come out of Egypt thirsty, hungry, fed, watered. They are attacked from behind by a tribal group that lives in the north of Sinai, the people of Amalek or the Amalekites. We learn in Deuteronomy and Moses' speech that their, their technique 
was to attack from the back of the group where the weak, the tired, the nursing, the elderly would be trailing behind the group, decimate them and cut them off from the rest. Just like a lion or, or, a, or a, any kind of predator goes after the weak or the young or the injured or the lame or the wounded, etc., the weak. That's literally what happens to them in this passage of Scripture. We're going we're gonna to be in Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. And the last time they had a battle, God said to them, you need only be still. The Lord himself will fight for you. These Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again. They wash up on the shore, dead. That is not how this one's going to go. So I want to unpack it, if we can, together and have some takeaways, if we can. So here's where we're going. Is that everything? Yeah. The Amalekites came, and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, first mention of Joshua, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men who will fight for us and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. We don't have any reason to believe that Joshua has ever fought anybody up to this point. They've, they are slaves. Slaves don't get to have weapons. That's just not how, so like, they come out, he's like, go pick the guys who will fight for us. We have got to handle this now. I will be up on this hill. I'll be up, I'll, you, I'll be up on this hill with my stick. And Joshua was like, I mean, I, he was like, okay, I mean, feels, okay, feels like you should come with the stick because it does stuff, but... Um, we're going to see a juxtapositioning of the perspectives present, how it's written. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. That account is written from the perspective of the hilltop. It is not written from the perspective of the battleground. Where Joshua chose dudes he knew, they went in and fought with a group that is used to fighting people, and they fight all day long until sunset, and there are times in the fight when the fighting sways, so they are losing, and times when they're winning, because we don't know how long it took when Moses is resting. It seems like he's beginning to figure out what's happening even as it's happening, but I don't know when watching a battle how long it takes to kind of watch and see who's winning and losing, how long that sway takes, and what is the carnage that's happening in between until you realize, I gotta keep my hands up. My hands are tired, I gotta keep my hands up. Now, hey guys, we have to keep my hands up. Joshua knows about that. Covered in blood, covered in sweat. His ears ringing with the screaming of men, clashing in hand-to-hand -hand combat and this kind of thing. The long reality of exhaustion, killing people, and watching people be killed around you all day long. The hilltop, just keep your hands up. Down there, survive. Survive. The hilltop, a picture of worship. Down there, death, destruction, carnage, and screaming. 
So this is what we see next. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down. Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. The ESV says, speak this into his ears because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, period. The name Joshua, which is also the name Yeshua, Jesus, means he rescues or rescuer. The last time they had been in a battle, Joshua was told, you need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. And he watched it happen. Now he's told, you are going to go and fight. You're going to pick the people. And he wins. I was sitting in this because I was like, Lord, there's a lot of places in Scripture where people are told to write stuff down, especially for Moses. This one feels a little obscure. You think about Daniel's visions, and he's told, write this down. You think about John on the island of Patmos with revelations, and he's told, write this down, don't write this down. Like, but this feels like a unique spot, but there's something in this for Joshua, who's going to become the leader of the people. This is the first of many bloody scenes of carnage for him. What he does here is nothing compared to what's going to be asked of him in the promised land. And he wins. And his perspective is from the battleground. Why does he need to know what was happening on the hilltop? Because when you are in the fray, covered in blood, surviving life, you're not worshiping, you are surviving. And your ears are filled with the screams of either yourself or others, and the blood of other people and your own is on you, it is hard to know that God is in control. You feel alone, and you feel like it's all on you. And if you win, you could believe, I did it. I did it. We must, and it is such a gift to us when God brings, in those seasons in my life when I was in the fray, it is such a gift when God brings to me the outside perspective. No one was with me. You guys were up on a hill. We were with you. When our hands were raised, you won. When we lowered our hands, you lost. Or think about a friend of yours who might be going through an intense season in their life. Maybe they're struggling with depression. Or I work with kids. Maybe a kid is struggling with such self-loathing they're cutting themselves and their leader starts to quietly fast and pray on their behalf. The kid doesn't know about all that, but there might be a time later in life where God goes, share that. Tell them in their ear. And they go, oh my God, I thought I was all alone in that. No, I was for you, with you, around you. My hands were up for you. And I, was, I had two moments this week where I, um, I just started weeping, thinking about this. Um, in seasons where myself or others I'm sitting with, they go, I was dying and I was screaming out to God, where are you? And he didn't do a dang thing. All on me. And what a gift it would be and could be and has been to me when the Lord tells me a different perspective in my ear. I was with you. Hands were raised to heaven on your behalf. People were engaged in a different kind of warfare for you. It's a different perspective, and it matters when the people of God retreat to be with him, and they, they do what he says, and they write it down. Jesus is called the Word made flesh, 
the narrative or the story of God made flesh or a new perspective, a revelation of God to us? How beautifully does that testimony run alongside the scriptures that we have and open our understanding up to who God really is? And that's the reality, I think, of this moment for Joshua when Moses comes and he goes, I know you were in it here. Here's how we were in it for you there. And Joshua's faith is bolstered up. And that has absolutely been true for me when my wife and I have weathered tragedy, loss, and suffering, and we felt alone, and God did not do what we wanted him to do. He has stooped low to us and whispered a different reality. It doesn't make it better or make it all go away. But when he's come and he has said, Here is how I am in this and was over you through this. It bolstered my faith. It didn't make the scars heal faster, but it helped me to trust him more and to continue on with him. That is the reality of when the saints and sinners of God withdraw to lonely places and sit with him. They do what he says and they record it. It's not just for you, but it is for you, but it will bless the generation to come. Here's what it says next. Moses built an altar, and he called it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. We went out, and the Lord was over us. And he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the, Am the Amalekites from generation to generation. I will never forget how they tried to attack you in a place of weakness. I myself will never forget and I will annihilate them. Tell Joshua. Um, that time that I spent in my dad's prayer journal changed my life. I have a stack of my own prayer journals. It probably stands about this tall. It's all garbage. It's, I would say it's totally terrible, worthless material. It's not for anyone. If you read it, you would probably be like, Greg is a terrible person. But also, he, there's some neat stories in here. Um, but I, I, I have learned the rhythm of keeping a record of the Lord's faithfulness in spite of my fickleness, not only from Moses and David and Paul and others, but from my father, my dad. And my prayer journals are not for my sons. But if the Holy Spirit causes their paths to cross with mine in that way, they will know me and know my God, the God of Greg, Peter, Ronald Hook, Joshua Gravitt, in a way that they have not known before, and it will bolster their faith. And one of the songs that Moses sings is picked up by the choruses of heaven at the redemption of all things. So that's where I'm going to close. Oh, if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen. Revelation 15. When Peter is writing to the church in 1 Peter, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you have. Do we have something to say? Have we been recording well enough that we remember God's movement in our lives, or are we just forgetting in 1 Corinthians, he said, God's, God loves to shame the wisdom of the wise with the foolish things and to use the weak things to put to shame the strong. 
it's not because your testimony or your writing is going to be so profound and so beautiful and so awesome and so whatever. It's exactly the opposite. It's he's going to use your weakness and the scribbles of sinners and saints alike to glorify himself, not only for those around you, but for the generation to come. The very things that you want to see accomplished in our country and elsewhere, it's most likely going to be entrusted to the Joshua's that you have a hard time thinking bring anything to the table right now. What are you going to tell them about the God that you worship? Um, Revelation 15. John's looking, um, this is starting in verse 2. I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast. They held harps given to them by God and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here's the song. I will not sing it. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Two pages over, when you're meeting the people who have overcome Two pages over in Revelation 12, it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What are we bringing to the table? How have we been shaped by others? And do we retreat often to lonely places to be with Jesus, to do what he says, to write it down? It is far more impactful than we know, not only for us, but for those who are coming behind us. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, when I study the life of Moses and I look at him, I just feel really small. Help us to learn from the way that he walked with you, from the way that you disclosed yourself and your character and your ways to him and to your people. Help us to learn from this litany of characters from Abraham to King David and on, and you yourself taking on flesh and walking among us. Lord Jesus, we want to love you, and we don't want to just love you. We want to be in love with you. Would you invite us or re-invite us or help us to start that rhythm, high tide, low tide, where we are swept out into the deep places with you, and we linger and tarry there with you. doing what you say, recording it. Our songs, our tears, our sorrows, the, the story and the narrative. Lord, have your way over our lives. And any places, Lord, that where we've stirred curiosity this morning, would you meet uh, my brothers and my sisters in that and would you speak to us? Amen. <laughs>